0: welcome to our hen house this is jasmine singer and this is marianne sullivan thank you so much for joining us this week it's a very special week because we have two guests and we're very excited about both of them since they each in very different ways are inspirational examples of what is happening at the grassroots of this movement marianne's guest this week is not only a passionate activist but she's also in our hen house flock member Sue Fisher's work for animals is focused on saving an endangered elk herd in California, which is not only hugely important in and of itself, but as you will learn, it touches on and brings together so many of the most important issues we face, helping wildlife impacted by climate and other human-made disasters, the harms of animal agriculture, the importance of our national park system. This is an interview you really don't want to miss.
1: And then, as Jasmine mentioned, we have a second interview. Her interview will be with someone who is working with individuals impacted on the other end of animal agriculture, and one that is, of course, as we all know, just as important. Dr. Judy Brangman will be here to talk about the harms of the dependence on animal foods and what the health industry must do to truly serve its patients, with a particular focus on the importance of a plant-based diet to the BIPOC community.
0: I really enjoyed getting to know Judy. And of course, I really enjoyed getting to know Sue because she is in the flock, as I mentioned, and she comes to many of our Flock Friday Zoom calls, which are the first Friday of the month. And speaking of the flock, on this weekend's Flock bonus segment, which isn't actually on the weekend, it comes out on Tuesday for Flock members, Marianne will be continuing her discussion with Sue. So as always, if you're a Flock member, you'll get a link to that bonus segment in your email on Tuesday, or you can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the Flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. And just a reminder, between now and the end of the year, all of your donations are matched dollar for dollar up to $20,000, assuming we get to that $20,000. So it's a great time to join the Flock.
1: And if you are a flock member, you can also join us for our flock First Friday Zoom calls, which have really been so great of late. Our latest guest was Mark Hawthorne. I just loved that meeting. They're once a month on the first Friday of the month at 4 p.m. Eastern. That's 8 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time. And of course, we chit chat about, about activism. The episode with Mark was just the epitome of, of he is he's the activist's activist. But we also talk about dealing with the crazy world we live in, and we speak to inspiring guests, Mark, this month, but every month we have somebody who's really cool. So if you're a member of The Flock, check out The Flock Facebook group for updates. Write to us at info at org if you wish. And you can also set up one-on-one conversations with Jasmine.
0: Yes, if you're interested in talking to me about your activism or your veganism, your change-making Email Jen and we will get that set up. Jen at org. So before we get to our interviews and also a very special surprise we have, a very special surprise happened for you too, which is that you woke up last weekend and you said, I'm gonna go rescue some cats. And then you
1: did. I know, and I did surprise myself. And as usual, I did everything in an irresponsible manner. I didn't even have a litter box at home when I when I brought them home.
0: Well, we had an extra one
1: for you. So don't worry, everyone. I am I'm so, like, it's two cats. They're both very sweet. I re- I mean, I didn't rescue them from, from a dire situation. I got them from a lovely, lovely rescue called Pet Pride in uh, Victor, New York. I am so completely overwhelmed. If you can tell from my attitude or my affect, I I got absolutely zero sleep last night. <laughs> you know, like, I haven't had cats in a long time, and I just, you know, you forget about when you bring animals into your home, it's a difficult experience. <laughs> like They just cry all night. They don't really get along with each other yet, which is really, uh, as my friend Darren said to me, who also has a black cat, both of these cats are black, says they will act weird at first, then get cozy, then continue to be weird. And uh, that's yeah. those are my expectations. I'm still working on names. I think one of them is Eugene. That's for my father and my grandfather and my uncle. They're, everybody in my family is named Eugene. And I figure we're kind of at the end of the road for Eugene. So I should at least memorialize uh, that beloved name in my family um, with, with my kitty. And the other one, I think, is Francis Aloysius, but I'm not absolutely sure. They're both boys. They're unbelievably adorable. And, oh, my God, what a night. Oh my gosh, I have wanted
0: wanted to interrupt you so many times, but you haven't breathed like since you started that sentence about the cats. I don't think I breathed since I got the cats. Well, okay, first of all, I love these kitties, and I was able to be there to help choose them, which is a hard and heartbreaking process, because we always think of the ones we didn't choose. But I am obsessed with them. Well, it was
1: a lovely, lovely shelter. I mean, I would be perfectly happy to live there the rest of my life
0: that might be what ultimately saves you. I don't know that from the overwhelmed feeling, but in any case, Muzzle Tub is very exciting. I too belong to the black cat club and I'm so happy that you do now as well. So I'm sure you'll keep us posted.
1: Never in my wild. I, I this is totally your fault. Not in my wildest ridiculous dreams. <laughs> did I think I would get a kitten? Like I didn't want a kitten. I know the kittens don't sleep and i think that other kittens will get adopted by other people so you know it's much better to take the older cats and my other cat is an older cat who has some health issues so you know i feel virtuous about this one and then this this 3 month old kitten who uh is just like an unbelievable whirlwind of energy never in my in my wildest worst best dreams did i imagine that i would he is the cutest thing on the face of the earth i'm not going to deny it but you know anybody who has had a kitten you know what i you know what i'm talking about
0: yeah that is my fault because i was holding him and and, and more wouldn't let me bring him home because we already have four animals so i made you bring him home so anyway my yeah. fault but yay i'm so excited okay we have to move so that on would be francis
1: Aloysius. i i thought since he was so small he needed a big name a big a name, name anyway. i love that
0: well, very exciting. Please keep us posted about what goes on. And we have so much to get to today that I think we need to keep going.
1: Yeah, I really hope that I don't. I hope I don't fall asleep before the end of this. If I Okay, do, just you won't. In, okay? Although
0: many years ago, and I will not say which one, but many years ago, Marianne and I were interviewed for a podcast, not ours but someone else was interviewing me and you fell asleep while we were being interviewed.
1: (laughs) 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 And I was like, oh, shit. I don't find either of us that interesting.
0: Anyway, it just made me think of that very funny moment. (laughs) So before we get to the first interview with Sue Fisher, we have a very special surprise for you. Sue is going to be talking with Marianne, as we mentioned, about her work to save an endangered elk herd in California. It's really cool because we have another very talented flock member who works on the campaign as well. Her name is Charity Khan, and she wrote a song to support the movement to save the indigenous Thule elk in Point Reyes National Park from the threat of starvation and murder as a result of the private ranching industry's stronghold on our public lands. And we're excited to play it for you.
1: Just to give you a little background about the song, Charity says that the song is a calling out of politicians and the Park Service and those in positions of legislative power and a calling in to activists and anyone who wants to learn more and participate in saving these unbelievably majestic creatures, as well as biodiversity and the Point Reyes ecosystem. The song was recorded with Darren Rovin and his band, The Invisible Bee.
0: And we'll be linking in the show notes to where people can listen to and download the song and watch the video made by Tony Seagal of Silver Reaction Media. So definitely check out those show notes. And with that, here is Charity's song.
2: Jared Huffman, you better listen to us because we are coming Got the truth on our side And we're ready to ride it As long as it takes now Point Reyes Is a national treasure But a full one-third of it Is leased to ranchers Some people want to kill indigenous the elk to protect Their profits Are you for the elk? Are you for the earth? Are you for the future Of the creatures and the dirt? Or are you for the systems that threaten not who are you working for? Who now are you working for? Who who are you fighting for? Who who, who are you in bed with? Who are you going to protect, preserve, uplift, restore? to ecosystem and ensure that the elk and their habitat are free from destruction so if you want to be able to sleep at night well then you better get on the right side of this fight the time is now to listen and respond with the logic of compassion are you for the elk are you for the earth are you of the creatures and the girder Are you for the systems A threat all existence Who are you working for? Who now are you working for? Who, who are you fighting for? who, who, who are you in bed with? Who are you going to protect, preserve, uplift, restore, defend? Rays has signed a plan that enshrines private industry inside the National Park for the next 20 years. The plan calls for the killing of the tule elk because they compete for grass that is leased to 24 commercial beef and dairy ranches. This species is native to California and has been brought back from near extinction. We want the Park Service to do their job and support the maximum protection, restoration, and preservation of wildlife and the natural environment. So tell me, are you for the Elf? Are you for the Earth? Are you for the future of the creatures and the dirt? Or are you for the systems that threaten all existence? Who are you working for?
0: wasn't that moving? I love when the arts and advocacy come together. If you loved it and you want to find out more about Charity Khan, she's a musician, a teaching artist, and a certified mindfulness meditation teacher based in the San Francisco Bay Area. She's the founder of the award-winning Charity and the Jam Band, sharing music, movement, and meditation with kids of all ages through her beloved classes. And she also brings a passion for climate awareness, veganism, animal liberation, and food justice, via her projects, The Invisible Bee and The Vegan Journey. So you could connect with her at jamjamjam.com and theinvisiblebee.com. I remember, Marianne, our henhouse was really partly founded on our love of when the arts and
1: activism come together. Yeah, absolutely. It's always been a passion.
0: Yeah. So we have such great flock members, by the way. And with that beautiful intro, let's transition to Marianne's interview with Sue. Sue Fisher became aware of the Thule elk who were being deprived of the habitat they occupied in Point Reyes National Seashore by beef and dairy interests by viewing The Shame of Point Reyes, a documentary by Skylar Thomas. A registered dietitian for about 15 years and vegan since 2012, Sue was so moved by the plight of these animals that she joined with others from a variety of organizations and individuals who had formed the coalition to save Point Reyes National Seashore toward the common goal of saving the Tule elk and the entire park from the ranches. She will be joining Marianne right after this.
1: social media has become such an important part of almost all of our lives. So please make our hen house part of that social media experience for you. You can like us on Facebook. You can Follow us on Twitter or Instagram. We try to post some news stories to help you keep up to date on what's happening in the world for animals. You can also find us online, of course, uh, on our website, OurHenHouse.org, or you can email us. If you have some concerns or questions or something you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, let us know, info at OurHenHouse.org. Welcome to Our Hen House,
3: Sue. Thank you, Marianne. I'm thrilled to be here. As you know, I'm a fan of Our Hen House. And you and Jasmine do so much for the activist community. And you um, make such a nice community here. Well, that was. I, I
1: want to start off every interview like that.
3: So, <laughs> <laughs> with a compliment.
1: Thank you. That's very, very generous. You're
3: welcome.
1: But as is true with so many of our listeners and flock members you are an activist in and of yourself. It's not just that you listen to our Hen House. That's exactly why our Hen House exists, to support activists. And and we're gonna be talking about this this really extraordinary situation. And I, I just think, I mean, it's important in and of itself for the animals who are involved, but as so many things in our community are, it really encompasses so much of the bigger picture of what we do to animals but let's get to these specific animals. And I know it's not just the elk who are at risk in this in this park, but they are kind of the the poster children for this issue. The Thule elk, they're extraordinary animals. Can you tell us a little bit about who they are, what's happened to them, their history, and, and then we'll get into the present day issues? Sure. I'd
3: love to. Uh, the Thule elk are endemic to California, so you will only find them here. They're these beautiful animals. They're kind of a, I'll pay, try to paint a picture, a tan color with their, their chests and neck are rust. The males have antlers and they bugle. I don't know if anyone here has heard a Chile elk and you could Google it. They make this incredible sound when they call back and forth to each other. The problem is that they're at 1% of their original population, which which is actually good because they thought they were extinct in the late 1800s because, of course, they had to compete with the uh, extractive nature of colonialism. So they lost their range and they were overhunted. But a few were found, some say between 12 and 20, and now they're back to about Throughout the entire state, there's probably 5,000. There's actually more cows, though, in Point Reyes than there are Tule elk in the entire state. I want to hear about what Point
1: Reyes is, too, because that's really where these animals are concentrated, right? And where they have been brought back.
3: Yes, they've been brought back there. They are still throughout the state, but again, only at 1% of their population. In the 70s, they brought. Thule Elk to reintroduce them to Point Reyes National Seashore, which is this incredible, beautiful national park on the California coast. It's a biodiversity hotspot in California. 1,500 species, different species, plant and animals are there. And of course, the Tule Elk, which that is the only national park where you would find these animals. So they were brought there in the 70s. And there are now three groups. One, two are free roaming in the park, they're smaller. And then the bigger herd would be at Tamales Point, which is this peninsula. So they are there on about 2,000 acres, but there's a fence at the end to prevent them from getting into the land that is leased to ranchers and dairies. And you have to understand, one third of the national park is being used for agricultural purposes, animal ag. So the tule elk are behind this fence, like a zoo. You call it a national seashore, but that's exactly the same as a
1: national park, right? It, it's just that it happens to be on the ocean.
3: Correct. It is It is a national park unit and it is governed by the same rules. In, in other words, this should, should be some of the most protected land in the country.
1: Yeah, and I, I mean, I've never been there, but I've seen pictures and it is exactly the kind of land that we would want. I mean, it's just, spectacularly beautiful anybody who's been along the california coast which you know i know belongs to californians more than the rest of us but i think everybody in the country thinks of the california coast as something extremely precious and something that should be saved so there are a lot of elements going on here animals who were almost extinct and brought back just iconically beautiful american land something that was already protected (laughs) like was made a national seashore and then, as you pointed out, now is full of cows. And of course, we're all, you know, the cows are not our enemy. We want to protect the cows as much as any other animal, but, but they are also the victims here. So just to complete the picture, tell us a little bit more about the cows. I suppose I'm supposed to call them cattle because cows is supposed to be a female animal. But, you know, I just... Drives me crazy that there's no word for a single bovine apple. <laughs> I don't know whether to call them cows or cattle, but but forgive me if I'm offending anybody. But tell me why they're there and how many there are and who they belong to. I mean, you've already said this is ranching and dairy, but just broaden that
3: picture a little bit. There's approximately, I think there's 24 ranches and dairies out there. And they, when the park was created in 1962 they sold their land to the Park Service. And in today's dollars, they received approximately $380 million. So they were paid for their land. And then the agreement was that they would allow them to lease back the land at below market rate for 25 years. So that would give them this transition period. Well, the 25 years has long passed. And they're still there, and the Park Service has been renewing the leases. And this came to a head in 2016 when three environmental groups, including a local group, the Resource Renewal Institute, sued the park over the fact that between the 2013 and 15 drought, approximately half, which was about 254 of the elk in the Tamales Point location, the ones that are fenced in, uh, died due to the drought. Because you have to understand, they're fenced in, so they can no longer forage for what they need as far as food and water. So then this, this lawsuit came about, which then led to the Park Service being required to look at their general management plan and amend it, which led to them having to do an environmental impact study. And that study says, look at what the park would be like uh, with no ranching or with something in between or even ranching expanded. So
1: the situation now is that they're still there. The cows are still there. And as a result, the elk just do not have the habitat that they need and presumably other animals as well. But as I mentioned before, the elk are kind of the the poster children for the animals of Point Reyes National Seashore. So what has been the role of the Park Service in this controversy? Like they've made these accommodations for ranchers in the past and they just eagerly decided to renew these leases, even though they no longer had to, is that right? And what is their just do they offer a justification for this? It's
3: very convoluted and it's it's hard to even understand why the Park Service would be prioritizing this industry over wildlife in a national park. A lot of it is political. Uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein of California supports this. Congressman Huffman, who is the congressman that is his area, he supports it. So you have this political support. And then there's, you know, people have This idea, you know, this romantic idea of ranching and dairy farms, and they're part of the landscape, and we need to protect this. So there's this all these different issues coming together. Fortunately, more and more people are learning about the devastation and how it's destroying the park and speaking up. And as part of the park review, they had to ask for public comment, and they received 7,600 and some odd comments from the public. Well over 90% stated, get the ranching and the dairies out of this national park. Yet they're not listening to these public comments. How many times have we heard that
1: story that they get a gazillion comments and like, I don't even know why they do them. Like the, the comments are all in favor of whatever the animal issue is and in favor of the animals and they just seem to ignore them. Let's talk a little bit about how you got involved here. From what I understand, you first found out about this from a documentary, is that right?
3: That's correct. My husband and I had actually, we moved back to California in 2018 after having been away for a few years. So we were trying to, you know, get the feel of the land, what's going on. And there was a vegan meetup in San Francisco, which involved a dinner and the screening of this documentary. And I was curious, I'm like, I thought the shame of Point Reyes, what could be happening out there? Because prior to leaving California, we loved hiking there. And we went to the documentary and it was just shocking to me watching this film and it's showing what is taking place in a national park. And it just struck me while I was watching this because I am a registered dietitian and I came to veganism through health and nutrition. So I'm watching this film and I'm learning how one third of the park is devoted to agriculture, which is detrimental to all the other animals and wildlife, to produce a product that makes us sick, the park sick, contributes to climate change, is not good for the cows, clearly not good for the elk. And I just thought, how could this be going on and what can we do? There was another group at the park, Four Elk, which is a group of activists, one of the many groups, working on this problem to stop this agricultural businesses in the going on in the park. And they had a sign-up sheet, sign up if you want to help. And that's more or less how it started for me. And it, it was not long after that, we were out in the park doing outreach with visitors, protests, and it just seemed to snowball from there as more people came to the cause and more groups. It's a very, it's a very group of people that are working on this, which is pretty incredible.
1: Yeah. That's one of the things I love about it because so often, you know, it, the animal activists are on their own about an issue, but this issue is really bringing together. I mean, not that anybody in the group doesn't care about animals at all, but but as we know, frequently wildlife people and vegan activists aren't on the same page. But this is really an issue that has crystallized a, a coalition, hasn't it? Can you tell us some of the some of the people who are coming together to fight this and what, what it is that, you know, is their kind of initial impetus to get involved? I assume for you it was the animals, you know, the animals were like, since it was a vegan meetup and that was the first thing that drew you in. But how does it come together for all of these different groups and where are they coming from?
3: And that is interesting because for me, it like it's the cows and the elk and the whole issue is intertwined. But for many people, it's they're coming more from the wildlife perspective, conservation, climate. But it's interesting as more and more people get involved, you get more ideas. For example, um, In Defense of Animals is involved. PETA has come out and put up billboards and gotten involved at protests. Uh, Miyoko Shinner from Miyoko's Cheese, because actually her animal sanctuary is not too far from there. So there's many groups getting involved and just such a varied group of people. There's now it is the um, Coalition to Save Point Reyes National Seashore, which is just a forum of all these groups, and there's emails going out on a daily basis so that everybody knows what's going on because there's so many different types of activism going on right now. And behind the scenes, just keeping tabs on what's going on. Volunteers are monitoring things that the Park Service should be monitoring, like water quality, because if you can imagine a million pounds of manure being dumped onto the land each year, and then when we do get the rains, it's carried in into the water, which leads to the ocean, Um, monitoring Park access, you can imagine the miles of fences that are put up in the park because and paid for with our tax dollars, which inhibits people from accessing all areas of the park. Or you can, but it's difficult. I don't know if you've gone over under a barbed wire fence. It's not fun. (laughs) Sounds like it's something you might have been doing in the recent past (laughs) too. I have. (laughs) So there's all these different groups coming together and with amazing ideas. There's one gentleman, Jack Gescheit, which is, he's such a great organizer, and he just has this knack for getting the media to come out and coming up with ideas that will will draw the media. For example, a few months back, a group dressed as Elks in prison uniforms, they marched down the reserve in Tamales Point to where the fence is. A few hundred other folks followed behind carrying signs and we all met at the fence and lined up and obviously we can't get out. And that was a media draw and, and made the local news, which then draws more people to the cause. This is just occurring to me as you're saying it, but it's so hard to bring attention
1: to animal agriculture and its problems. And one of the reasons is frequently because it's not in big media markets, you know, it's out in the middle of nowhere and you can't get press out there, but you're really right outside San Francisco. I mean, essentially you you have access to major media markets that can really spread the word. So that's another another reason that this issue is compared to the number of animals involved. Each one of them, of course, is incredibly important. That, but the issue has the possibility of really being just a way to get people to to think about what's happening. Because as you pointed out, even people who come because they care about national parks or they care about all of the hideous environmental implications, they find out more about what dairy farming and, um, I don't like to call it farming, dairy production and cattle uh, production can do. And it's just another opportunity for, for education. So you mentioned there was a lawsuit in 2016. And then after that, things did did not really improve. They're talking about renewing the leases. I'm assuming these leases are below market cost because I can't even imagine what the market cost would be for that land. And I, I assume there was also some hope that the new administration would change the tune a little bit, but that hasn't really happened, has it?
3: Correct. Unfortunately, it hasn't. On a positive note, we actually thought that this the record of decision to continue the leases for 20-year leases was going to be signed the summer of 2020. And it kept getting pushed out. And I really think that a a big reason for that was all of the outcry. And then in January of 2020, there were 100 national organizations that signed on to a letter in protest to this, which went to the department of the interior which then again caused the park service to back off on the signing which gave us more time to get the word out you know unfortunately in on september 13th the park service did finally sign the record of decision and renewing the 20 year leases and that was disappointing because we really thought with this new administration we had a better chance but i think part of the problem is it's the local you know or not even local, but all of California, Senator Feinstein, the congressman, they're not on board with changing. I honestly think eventually this will come to an end. It's just unfortunate that it has to drag on this long. And they'll continue to suffer because there was another die-off in 2000 when they did a count from last summer. Again, the uh, herd fell by about one-third, the group that's fenced off. And that led to more uh, protests and actually carrying water that was already started summer of 2020 and then summer 2021, activists lugging water out to the elk and putting it in trows, which the park would then remove. But it brought great coverage and the park has now placed, first they put two troughs at one end of the point and now there's another couple of troughs at the other end. So they have provided water and I believe they're going to provide mineral licks as well. So they are being pushed to act because they have taken the attitude that we don't want to interfere with nature. I guess they don't understand that putting up a fence to prevent Yeah, from getting dairy farming
1: and cattle cattle production is nature? Right, right. Unbelievable. That's an unbelievable response. Yeah. But that, I mean, it just showed if they are responding, it's because they feel they have to. And that's because of the attention that's being brought to it. And if there's one thing Californians can understand, it's not having enough water. That just really hits home with everybody, that these poor animals are out there and they're being prevented from getting to water. It's its just completely outrage. And it's just so, like, it's just a, such a microcosm of of so much of what we do to animals. Like, we drove them to ext- close to extinction. Then, you know, some nice people felt bad and and they got brought back. And and then animal agriculture said, "No, we're making money." Uh, so <laughs> the old boy network got to work and and uh, money talks. And it's just it it ha- kind of has every issue. It even has. I mean, I meant to bring this up before when we we're talking about the coalition, but I had forgotten about it. But talking about Deb Holland, the Secretary of the Interior, reminded me because since she is Native American and one would hope that she would be sympathetic to issues, but but there is a tribe involved here even that, that is it is on the side of, of of saving the elk, isn't there?
3: Correct. And you know, actually it's interesting because The ranchers and the park seem to stress this history. We need to preserve these ranches because they're historical. They go back to the 1800s. Well, they seem to be forgetting that thousands of years ago, the Coast Miwok, the original people, were on the land. And they were living in a sustainable manner with the land and the animals. And it's as if they're erasing that. And they did send... The Coast Miwok Tribal Council of Marin, and Marin is the county where the park is located, did send a letter to Deb Holland saying that they opposed this continued ranching in the park. It's as if we're erasing this history that goes back thousands of years. History goes back
1: as far as white people. And before that, it's it's apparently not history. And because white people had cows, like, we should have cows forever. Yeah, it's it's so outrageous, too. Like, yeah, everything here is so outrageous. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> so uh, th- there's also a new lawsuit, right? And the Harvard Law Clinic has gotten involved.
3: Correct. They are involved in a lawsuit on behalf of three plaintiffs in the area who are obviously activists and um really working for this cause. And they are involved, but it's ongoing. It hasn't, that hasn't been resolved yet. And I suspect, I I don't know at this point, but I suspect that the original environmental groups who filed the lawsuit back in 2016 will most likely file another lawsuit. I'd be surprised if they didn't because they're just... That's an amazing group. You have biologists, ecologists, and they're they're definitely on top of this. And presumably are
1: extremely annoyed that they actually won their prior lawsuit and it doesn't seem to have actually accomplished much.
3: Yeah, it's we're still here, although there have been improvements made as far as the elk and their suffering right now, but that the fence needs to come down and ranching needs to be removed from a national park.
1: Yeah. And you, you, you mentioned it was ranching and dairy. Are there specifically like dairy barns on this, on this property? Like where, what are the, what is the involvement of the dairy cows?
3: There's definitely dairy barns and these are not, you know, they've tried to portray these, the part of these historical farms. So you're picturing this little barn with a couple cows and somebody sitting on a stool milking cows These are your massive, mechanized dairy operations. There's nothing small about them. They're modern dairy operations. And when you go to the Tamales Point area, you have to drive through miles of fencing. And this land that is void of any native, the California native prairie grasses that you should be seeing, it's these it's weeds or it's plants that have been grown to feed the cows. In summer, it's just this baked hard earth. You see the cows standing in, in the sun, minimal shade around their feed troughs. In the winter, they're standing in a slurry of mud and manure. It's, it's not what you should see in a national park. Unfortunately, it's what you see through a lot of the country when you drive take a long drive and you come across all this this overgrazed land? And of all places, why can't we get it out of a national park? Yeah. I, I've always been driven
1: crazy. I, people probably don't remember them as well uh, because they're from a while ago, but those commercials that used to be on, good cheese comes from happy cows and happy cows come from California. California, I mean, like I'm not defending Wisconsin dairy, but California cows live Very, very horrible lives because of the water conditions and the land conditions and they have these dry lot dairies. And I'm really shocked to find out that those kind of conditions, you know, I kind of thought of it as just cows grazing and then being removed from the land. But, But industrial agriculture is taking place in this national seashore for what you're saying.
3: Right. It's it's done on the same style as industrial agriculture. They might not have quite the numbers to be called that, but you see the confined feeding areas. It's not these little cows grazing in the pasture.
1: Yeah. Now, numbers, you know, they kind of rely on numbers, but it's the it's the conditions of the animals that matter. I mean, even if it's not as many cows, they're still living in the same industrial hell. They're just taking up lots of the of
3: the space doing it. So Correct. Think- and, there, and there's approximately, the numbers are, it's probably about between 5,500 and 6,000 cows in just the National Park area. And remember, there's only about 500 elk or so in the Unbelievable. Park. So as I said, I think of the elk as the poster
1: children for this for this saving the seashore, but I also think of this kind of this could be you know one of those issues that kind of crystallizes so many of the things that people are fighting for. I mean, there are climate implications here, there are animal rights implications, and 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 suffering implications. There's just the beauty. Like if people are just interested, don't believe in anything is going sour, but just interested in preserving the beauty of the California coast, which, as I said, is precious to most Americans it just brings together so many issues so and you know the fact that lawsuits are involved and the harvard clinics getting involved could be one of those issues that br- that as it has in california could bring people together to just see what's wrong like to finally like wake up and see that no cows grazing on the hillside is not sweet and charming it's awful so I would love to see this be a big issue. How can people who are listening, who agree, how can they get involved?
3: One of the easiest ways is if you went to savepointreyesnationalseashore.com, the website, and it's a wealth of information. It will give you some ideas on what you could do, who you could contact. I think Deb Holland's contact information is on there. We need, you know, keep bombarding these people. Of course you don't and you don't have to be just from California and contact California senators i would say whoever your senator is whatever state you're in let them know what's going on and tell them that you don't you don't like it also if you're in the bay area on december 4th in defense of animals and the turtle island restoration network is having hosting a protest and that will be in san francisco on december 4th so that is another way to get involved. And I, and just letting more people know, I think that really helps, too, to get the word out. I mean, and as you, of
1: course, know better than anybody, our listeners are already on board with animal issues. But it's nice to have that issue that you can talk to, you know, your cousin Harry about who doesn't get it at all. This is the kind of issue that people will carry about because I love the fact that you said you don't have to just write to your California center. It's a national seashore. It belongs to us all and they're ruining it. So even if you have relatives, who, you know, you're know, you not going to talk about the elk too and that they're suffering. This one really resonates. So
3: It does. And I actually know a dairy farmer and he thinks that these dairies and ranches should be removed from a national park. So it does bring many different people together. Yeah,
1: and and does include trying to help, as, as you always point out, the suffering of the elk and the suffering of the cows, really. Yes,
3: there's just so much going on and so much involved. It's such an intricate problem and issue, but I think we covered the gist of it. Good. And, and Good. and the goal is that hopefully sooner than later, this comes to an end and the Thule elk are free because it is heartbreaking to know that these animals are suffering the way that they are.
1: I hate even thinking about what you told me about them being behind the fences and not being able to try to get to water. It's just, it's just tragic.
3: Can I just say, I would also yeah. encourage people, if, if you'd like to watch The Shame of Point Reyes, you could just Google that and you will find it. It's it's an incredible documentary. And if you're willing to just spend eight minutes, there is another film, Tule Elk, The Killing of a Native Species. That's just an eight minute film. And it was actually, it's been at a few film festivals. That's great. And both of those films are pretty recent.
1: So Correct. So they, they really give you, um, not completely current, because there's a lot going on all the time, but really bring you up to speed on, on the issues. So... That's a great idea. Thank you so much for sharing all this information with us, Sue. Thank you for, for your support of our Hen House. Thank you for everything. This is I, I'm really so happy we got to cover this issue.
3: Thank you, Marianne. I'm just so grateful that I'm able to share this information. And I think the more people that learn about it, our momentum grows and we will win. I love it. I love Sue. I love that interview.
0: That was wonderful.
1: I was so excited about this interview because it's the, the issue just brings together so many of the different issues that we talk about. It's like a microcosm of what's happening to animals, both wild animals, domesticated animals. It brings it all together. And I thought she did an amazing, amazing job of really communicating a fairly complex situation so that we could all understand it. And as we mentioned before, we're super excited that we have a second interview for you today. So let's get to that. Dr. Judy Brangman is a board-certified internal medicine and lifestyle medicine physician who, as part of her mission to help others live healthier and better, advocates for a whole food plant-based diet. She is also the founder and owner of Newell Health, a lifestyle medicine company, and aims to help her patients minimize their medication dependence. That's something she particularly focuses on as much as as is possible. She'll be joining Jasmine right after this.
0: change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review.
4: Welcome to our head house, Dr. Judy. Hi, Jasmine. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm so happy to be here.
0: I am very excited about chatting with you. Uh, I know that we don't have physicians on enough and I know that there are not enough plant-based doctors out there, but there do seem to be more and more. We have been really looking forward to our chat with you, so I'm looking forward to just jumping right in. One of the difficulties, I believe, for physicians who want to help their patients treat or prevent disease with what they eat is that it's time consuming. And the medical industry seems to be financially geared toward the goal of spending as little time as possible with each patient. So can you speak to this? What is the best way for a doctor to incorporate bedside manner and time and and energy toward the actual person in front of them into their practice?
4: Wow. I'm laughing as you say this because I can relate on so many levels. So I currently work as a hospitalist, a hospital-based internal medicine doctor, but I have worked in primary care before, and the biggest problem that I felt with Primary care was that the visits were too short with traditional primary care. So I always felt rushed. I didn't have time to address all the problems the patient wanted to discuss. And then I definitely didn't have time to talk about nutrition because that's a touchy subject and that takes peeling back some layers. Um, And so actually, that's why I started my social media because I needed a way to reach people in the community in my area that I just didn't have time to reach in the clinic. So I started my Instagram. And that's exactly how I started. I started doing Facebook Lives, Instagram Lives, and just you know videos because I knew that this information needed to get out there, and I didn't feel that I had enough time in clinic to address it. And so I even started doing local workshops. Like I would just have like a session at the library. I did one with a speaker who's also plant based about protein, and then sometimes I would do it or do a cooking demonstration. Sometimes you have to be creative and think outside the box and do it outside your clinical job.
0: Well, you know, it's funny. I don't want to get too off subject here, but I recently had a bout with very serious dizziness and I was like, I don't know what to do. And so I went on to Instagram. I, I like to pretend I'm a millennial and I, I typed in like hashtag BPPV and I found this vestibular specialist. Who is a doctor and has this, like, I don't even know what you would call it, like a side practice as like basically an influencer. I wound up scheduling a meeting with her and I found her through Instagram. I never would have found her otherwise. So I know I sound like an old fogey when I'm talking about this stuff, but the fact that people could be interested in plant-based medicine and just do what I did and look, you know, look someone up and find you is such an incredible way of getting out the message.
4: Oh yeah. It's pretty awesome. I get uh, so many requests for speaking and different things through Instagram. And as far as my clinical practice, you know, seeing patients, all it takes is just leaving small seeds of possible change. So I bring up diet with each patient most times, but it's usually something brief as in encouraging them to eat more fruits and vegetables because I find in my practice in North Carolina, the diet here is very low in fruits and vegetables. I think that's the biggest problem. So not necessarily encouraging them to make drastic changes with one visit, but encouraging them to make small changes that are doable to that person.
0: I I mean, I think that that's cool just in terms of advocacy tips in general. Like I think a lot of our listeners could probably relate to that idea of like you kind of have to start with who you're with when it comes to advocating for a plant-based diet, advocating veganism. It's affirming to hear that that's how you're going about it too, because we've always heard that doctors don't learn anything about diet and nutrition in medical school. So tell us, how bad is it? How ignorant would you say most medical professionals are about
4: nutrition? Well, it is true that the nutrition training is minimal for physicians I think I saw some data that said 22 hours over the course of medical school is probably how much nutrition training the average physician has. There are several schools that are trying to do um, better in that area now, so I'm grateful for that. There's lifestyle medicine, um, which is kind of like a new and growing field. The American College of Lifestyle Medicine, they have a conference every year. So that's where I first started to learn about plant-based nutrition by going to that conference. And then um, PCRM, Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, I started to their conferences. And that's basically how I started my own self-journey to learning about plant-based nutrition. Um, but it started with someone who was plant-based, who had been able to come off the diabetes medications. And I didn't know that that was possible. And so when I started to read about it, I was really blown away because I remember in residency actually... I've always been kind of like a holistic minded person who was interested in prevention. And we learn a lot about pharmacology. We learn about pathophysiology of disease, um, but we don't learn very much about really truly actually preventing it. And I didn't even know that it was really possible to be honest, to really prevent as much conditions as I know now is preventable. I didn't know that it really was a large portion related to diet. Mm-hmm. When I was in residency, I remember asking, you know, one of my favorite rotations was nephrology, learning about the kidneys. And I remember asking, "Well, dialysis takes up a large portion of someone's life, three times a week for a couple of hours. It's and it's extremely expensive. How can we prevent patients from developing kidney failure or kidney disease?" And I just remember my attending saying, "Well, it's nothing that can be done, or it's genetic." And I, I'm sure I've asked even about diabetes, like, "Well, how do we prevent diabetes?" And I never really got like a response. Mm -hmm. But I never was really satisfied with that answer either. In my spirit, I was like, there has to be a way. Diabetes and blood pressure, I feel like there's something that you can do to improve it. But it wasn't until after residency that I discovered that the answer is plant-based, whole food plant-based. And I'm a firm believer in it because I'm an internal medicine physician, which means I see adult patients. And most patients have chronic conditions that evidence has shown could be improved with the diet a better diet, better lifestyle changes, and some of them can be prevented and even potentially reversed.
2: Hmm.
0: It's interesting for me to hear that Like when I think about how it never really comes up as something that you can do something about preventatively. And I know that's one of the pillars of uh, lifestyle medicine. I, I, I was recently listening to Eric Adams, who has been on our Henhouse before, talk on the Ezra Klein podcast about how when he was diagnosed, with diabetes, he went home and he was told to Google living with diabetes. And he was like, "I changed one word. I, I made it reversing diabetes, and that sent him down this path of Dr. Caldwell Esselson, and you know, uh, ultimately leading him to also a whole foods way of eating. And it is just, it is still mind-boggling. I have interviewed many doctors before and people who have been able to turn around these giant." enormous diseases that are plaguing our country with fruits, vegetables, you know beans, healthy fats, etc. And yet it seems to still be a fringe topic. Like you are still a bit of a unicorn. When and how will that ultimately
4: change? I don't know. I hope that it changes sometime during my lifetime of practice, but yes, I do feel like the odd one out. I remember conversations with my colleagues when I used when I was doing primary care and I was talking about cholesterol and I was saying that high cholesterol can be significantly improved by dietary changes and my colleagues were just kind of looking at me like with the puzzle face or kind of like well you know it's all genetic or oh it's really not that much you can do and different things like that and I was like no really diet is <laughs> more important than we've been taught to believe that it is like it's really a game changer, essentially. But being unique, or I guess like a unicorn has helped me to fill a void in, in the space. And I've basically built a brand off of the fact that there's not enough doctors that are advocating for plant-based nutrition. There's not enough Black doctors, period, and especially ones that advocate for plant-based nutrition. So I'm able to fill a niche that needs to be filled
0: well, I, I'm curious about something you just said, Dr. Judy, you said there are, you you pointed out there are not enough black doctors. Can you speak to that? Like, what do you think that is about? That there are not enough black doctors
4: specifically advocating for plant-based diets? Well, I was saying that there's not many black physicians in the U.S. as a whole, regardless mm. of what their dietary pattern is. Only 5% of physicians in the U.S. identify as black and 2% are black female. So I'm in a very small percentage of Black female positions, and then you take uh, the whole food plant base that narrows it down even more.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I've I've done a few interviews on that matter. It's very exciting for me that Black veganism is it is as you said the fastest growing, and it's always been huge. I think it just hasn't necessarily been identified as such. But I, I hadn't heard th- about the stats regarding only 5% of, of doctors being Black and only 2% being Black women. Oh, I hope that we can change that. Tell us about Newell
4: Health. Am I saying that right? Yes. Yeah. So I started Newell Health last year uh, with the goal to coach and consult patients through transitioning to plant-based diet and achieving their health goals, whatever those goals may be. So. I originally started with a physical office space. I was doing one-on-one consultations just before the pandemic. Um, But then when the pandemic came, I had closed that. So I'm no longer doing one-on-one consultations, but I do online courses. So last year I did a summit, Reclaim Your Health Summit, that was very successful. And I've kind of been focusing more on public speaking events and webinars, but I'm planning to launch a online program next year sometime.
0: An online program. Can you give us a little bit of a sneak peek about what it, what it could look like? I promise we won't, we won't call you on
4: it. No, we will. We will. We promise. <laughs> it will be a plant based beginner's course for people who want to transition.
0: Oh, very exciting. And a lot of the people listening to this are uh, already, they are vegan already. What we have in common is that we want to be able to advocate veganism in a way that is accessible and exciting and tasty and affordable. Do you have any tips for our listeners who might want to be doing some outreach in their community? Perhaps they're not doctors, but maybe they also want those tips on like, well, how can I get the people in my community to start to make changes toward more and more uh, uh, vegan foods and, and fewer and fewer animal products?
4: They can start with their community where they are. So in their family unit, their friends circle, I would recommend introducing your family and friends to start to vegan meals. Let's say you have friends over for dinner or you go over to a friend's house for dinner, cook something that's vegan. And then if you have a larger circle, if it's like a church community or... If you're someone that likes to put on events, you can host something at like a library, a public library. You can host a talk where you're talking about plant-based diets, vegan diets, and how it changed your life. Like something like that. I'm sure people would sign up for. And then the social media, as we talked about earlier. Uh
0: yeah, absolutely. I mean the our hen house was founded on the belief that we can all do something. To change the world for animals, we can all do something to advocate for veganism. And those are some really great ways of getting involved. And I guess I want to stress for our listeners, especially because I'm speaking with a doctor, that you don't have to be an expert in every single aspect of plant based living, of veganism, in order to advocate for veganism. I think that that can really hold a lot of new- newbies back from speaking about it. But I just want to give you permission if you're listening to this to speak about it, even if you don't know everything about it. Dr. Judy, switching gears for a moment. I understand that you have had some personal experience with COVID. Can you tell us about that?
4: Yes. Yeah, so in August, beginning with August, it's been three months now, I contracted COVID, unfortunately. Much to my surprise and dismay, I really expected that when I, if I got COVID that I would be asymptomatic. I thought it would be like a little cool, but I was actually really sick. Now, I... Had all of the symptoms except the respiratory symptoms. No shortness of breath, no cough, no pneumonia, didn't need oxygen. Um, But I had extreme fatigue, fever, congestion, sore throat, headache, and just felt terrible for like three weeks. The fatigue actually lingered. I still have it slightly, like when I exert myself, um, so it's not completely going away. So that's kind of been a bit discouraging. On the positive side, this is my first experience as a patient. I did have to go to the hospital. I was at work when I developed dizziness. And so I just went to the ER and that's where I basically got checked out. Um, And I did have to stay overnight because I was tachycardic. My heart rate was up, but otherwise they would have sent me home. Um, So that was my first experience as a patient in the hospital overnight. It really opened my eyes to what it's like as a patient from a personal experience, which Enables you to be more compassionate. I am my healthiest now than I've ever been. I started exercising since COVID, like regularly. I cut out added sugars and sweetness in my sweeteners from my diet. I've been eating more anti-inflammatory foods, vitamin C, garlic, ginger, turmeric, vitamin D. I've been increasing. So I've been doing all the things that you would think should have, Prevented me from getting as symptomatic as I was. Like, I know I'm not immune. And that was the take-home message for me, especially now, you know, with the Delta virus, that if you're young and healthy and vegan, you can still get COVID and you can still be very symptomatic.
0: And I assume you're you're vaccinated and this this was a breakthrough case?
4: Yeah, yeah, I'm vaccinated. Um, It's a breakthrough case.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: I do believe that being vaccinated at least prevented me from requiring oxygen. And getting pneumonia, which is what's the cause of you know death—the inflammatory response and pneumonia.
0: Wow, I'm so sorry that you went through that. That's always upsetting to hear for anyone. Uh, Do you know if there? But I'm also very glad you're okay, and I'm inspired by the changes that you've made since then to just sort of assess like what have you been doing? And of course, you are already eating a whole foods, plant based diet, but. It, it's interesting to me to hear that you made other pivots. anyway. I, I'm someone who plays a lot with the way I eat. You know, I've been vegan for seventeen years, and I've gone through all different types of veganism within those seventeen years. and i I'm constantly looking at how I can make sure that I'm eating optimally for the type of energy that I want to have. And in fact, as our listeners know i recently moved to rochester new york and there is rochester lifestyle medicine here which is entirely plant-based so i've been going there and seeing a doctor there and it's been surreal like just no like going into a facility and seeing that the whole bookshelf is vegan books and vegan cookbooks and then like uh, talking to someone who i don't have to explain, well, no, I am healthy, you know, because it, because so many doctors be like concerned whether I'm getting the right nutrients as a vegan. And I'm like, oh my God, this kind of creates the baseline of veganism. Speaking of which, and regarding your COVID, is there any research demonstrating an impact of diet on COVID?
4: Yeah. And also I wanted to add the changes that I was mentioning. I started at the beginning of COVID pandemic. I, oh. I didn't make any changes since because oh, okay. I pretty much were doing everything, but I was saying that I was so surprised that I was that sick because I've made so many healthy changes, you know, two years ago, a year and a half mm-hmm. ago. Mm-hmm.
0: I see. I see. I mean, that's still like, you know, the world is in an emergency and that's a good time for us to assess like, well, not only what we're doing for a living and if we're, if we are surrounding ourselves with like people who we want to, you know, be focusing our energy on, if we're focusing our energy on ourselves in a healthy way, but also like the way that we're consuming, whether that's consuming on Amazon versus, you know, an indie bookstore or whether it's consuming food that we feel is, is reflective of how we want to show up for ourselves. And I think a world, a global emergency can, can do that.
4: Absolutely. And to answer your questions about, plant-based diet and COVID. There's a study, it's an article in BMJ. It's called Plant-Based Diets, Presbyterian Diets, and COVID-19 Severity. You can look it up online, but they looked at diet and COVID and severity of cases among six different countries. And they found that plant-based diet were associated with lower odds of moderate to severe COVID-19. And so these dietary patterns may be considered for protection against severe COVID-19.
0: I'm curious about your story. I would love to know what you grew up eating and and when you started to connect the dots here with plant-based eating.
4: Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in Bermuda. That's where I'm from. My family lived there. And I grew up in a Seventh-day Adventist household and I'm still Seventh-day Adventist today. And so that laid the foundation for vegetarianism as part of the religion we emphasize or place importance on treating your body like it's the temple of God. So not smoking, not drinking and eating healthy. I've never been a person that consumed a lot of animal products. Um, Like I've never tasted bacon. I've never tasted like a lot of different meats that people, you know, typically would eat. And my parents are very healthy. So they really laid the foundation for healthy living. They exercise, they're 70, um, have gardens, (laughs) eat basically unprocessed foods. Uh, And so they're my inspiration, really, for eating healthy. And it was my mom who suggested that I stop eating dairy because she said that it will help my acne. I developed acne when I turned 30. She was right. That basically started it for me. I also developed lactose intolerance, which was kind of weird. And so that's what started for me. I stopped eating dairy. Then I wanted to see what the research was. So I started reading. And I was just blown away to find that there are studies and research on nutrition. Um, but again, none of that was mentioned or discussed in medical school. And there's good studies too. I really thought that there was no data on nutrition. That's what I thought. I thought that diet was just this thing, this fluffy thing that may help, may not help, but not really. And at the end of the day, the patient will still need medication. So don't really worry about diet, basically. That's kind of the mindset that I had. <laughs> and so This journey started, I would say 10 years ago, actually, but I was really resistant to transitioning because I loved, I I just didn't see any other way. You know, I didn't know anyone who was really doing it and I didn't think the food could taste good vegan. Most of the food that I had tasted wasn't good. So that's kind of my mission to kind of show people that vegan food can taste delicious. You can be healthy and live a life where you're (laughs) well-fed (laughs) <laughs> and not starving yourself eating vegan. And then once you learn about the dietary benefits of it, you just somehow come over and learn about the environment, animal advocacy, animal farming. Like, I think we have to understand that most people do not know these things. Like, think back to before you became vegan for your listeners. So, I think sometimes it's easy to get frustrated with people who don't see the world the way we do. But there was a time, I'm sure, before you knew what a factory farm looked like, before you even knew how milk was produced. It seems silly now, right? How is milk produced? Obviously, the mother has to get pregnant. But when you learn about the fact that a cow is like intentionally, artificially inseminated to have a baby to make milk for us to drink the milk and the baby cow is in a calf and a crate being fed like milk solids, it seems crazy. But people don't know this. <laughs> So that's why you know just getting the information out there to the public because they just don't know. And I live in North Carolina, which I think, if I'm not not mistaken, has the most pig farms in in, yeah. in the country. And yeah, especially where I, I trained and right. did residency, Eastern North Carolina. There are some cities not directly, not near Greenville, but I know the um, movie Forks so of a Nice commenting on it because Dr. Nelson is in North Carolina as well. But I remember. There were some communities out in eastern North Carolina that, you know, are dealing with the pollution from these farms.
0: Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you bring up so many really good points and, you know, uh, I know I'm not alone in this story, but I went vegetarian first. I think more and more people are going fully vegan first now. But when I went vegetarian, I was 19, you know, and that was, I don't, I can't really do math, but uh, 23 years ago or something like that. I can't do math. And at the time I, I had no idea what a factory farm was. I, you know, I was a vegetarian because I thought meat was icky and that was it. And when I went vegetarian, I just ate a whole lot of cheese and eggs, (laughs) which are not only terrible for you, but they're also like really inhumane. I mean, it's, it's just like the most cruel subsector of animal agriculture. And then I ultimately went vegan when I was 24 and, at that point, that's when I learned about everything. So it is amazing how much, how we could be driving down the street, passing those pig factories and not even taking it in or like just sort of, you know, out of sight, out of mind. And they're like far enough back from the highway that you're not looking at them and and whatnot. And what I think is so wonderful about what you're doing, Dr. Judy, and what, you know, the primary reason we wanted to have you on is because you're connecting those dots for people at a time when they need you at a time when they're coming to you because they they're they they do not have energy vitality they they don't feel well they're trying to create other ways of of healing and you're like hey by the way did you know <laughs> and so i really appreciate that i want to go back to something you said because you mentioned you got acne when you were 30. i did too i was like 25. i was actually already vegan at the time but I had never had bad skin issues before I was like 25. And it, it I find it is sort of fascinating, skin health. I, I wanted to know if you could talk about how your skin can serve as an important barometer for knowing whether what you're eating is serving you or not.
4: Oh my goodness, that is so true. Skin is an organ and it reveals you know, what's going on internally. Um, as far as acne, this is what's called hormonal acne. So especially for females, for me, like shortly before my menstrual cycle is when I will break out. Um, and then eating dairy, which is like hormones, <laughs> would lead to a breakout of acne. For me, cutting out dairy, I was able to completely get rid of my acne
0: similar though as you you were like oh damn it i got covid and i and i eat this way and i'm vaccinated i feel like that about my skin like oh come on i'm vegan like i shouldn't have skin Mm -hmm. outbreaks it's so annoying but it does bring up the fact that like veganism does not cure everything i mean i think that there is a problem with messaging sometimes in terms of like all of these promises of improved health and you know i do know people who have had protein deficiencies despite the fact that it is very 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 tiny amount of people. And it is not really spoken about in vegan circles. So I do know people like myself who have skin issues. Like it isn't necessarily a go vegan and everything is going to be fixed, but it is definitely a way of like cutting through the riffraff.
4: Absolutely. You can still get cancer. If you're vegan, you can still develop inflammatory conditions if you're vegan, because we live in a world where disease happens. And sometimes there is no explanation. And so I think that's an important messaging, too, that I often hear in the vegan community is that, OK, if you go vegan, you should never develop any sickness of any kind. People have to just be a bit more humble and realize that we're human, so we're going to get sick sometimes. And um, if I can just drive home that messaging that we shouldn't put our faith in ourselves and our physical body and think that because we're young, healthy and vegan that we're never going to get sick or that we can't get sick from a communicable disease is just not true
0: yeah i totally agree with that i'm glad that you're making that point you have so many different nuances in what you communicate that i appreciate dr judy like you're you're talking about the importance of changing what we're eating but you're saying sometimes we have to start with where the person is at and make little tweaks from there you're talking about the importance of it for our better or you know the betterment the optimal Uh, ways that we can be healthy, but you're also saying it's not a cure-all. And I just really appreciate too, that you also connected the dots with like what's going on for animals behind closed doors, because for a lot of our listeners, that's the driving force. And the rest of it is sort of like gravy, you know, like, oh, and I get to eat in a way that is not only in alignment with my ethical beliefs, but it's also something that can help me thrive. So I just really appreciate you. And I just wish we could clone you. Like, I wish that you were in your, your North Carolina. Great. But I wish you were like all over the country, all over the world. Like, how can, (laughs) how can we clone you? Well, how can we, how can we support your efforts to get you out there more, uh, more often in in a big way? Cause we need you.
4: Oh, thank you. You are so sweet. You know, I am mission and purpose driven, honestly. I don't know any other way to explain it, but I really do think that for me, my faith is a large portion of what I do and my belief in God and a higher power. And I do feel that my mission and purpose on this earth is to help people to live a better life, help people to see the world in a different way, help them to see themselves in a different way and help them to want the best for themselves, not just physically, but mentally, physically, emotionally, and just like level up, I guess, you know, like, live better, eat better so that you can be great and help someone else along their journey, whatever that may be, because we're all in this world together with different experiences, different backgrounds. And I firmly believe that you cannot really be at your best if your body is riddled with disease, if your mind, you're not able to think clearly because of what you're eating. So prevention is easier than cure. And so whatever age you're hearing this message or if you have family members that you're trying to convince to go vegan, I would say approaching it with uh, grace, patience and understanding is gonna get you further than using terms that kind of convey judgment or guilt.
0: Dr. Judy, I am I am your newest biggest fan. Can you please tell our listeners how they can follow you online?
4: Yes. So you can follow me on Instagram at theplantbasedmd. I'm also on Facebook and my website is theplantbasedmd.com. So everything is theplantbasedmd.com. Reach out to me, follow me. I love to connect and meet you.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, friends. Jasmine here with some news and some gratitude for you. I hope you've been enjoying the Our Hen House podcast lately, and for those of you in the flock, I hope you've been enjoying your added weekly bonus material and other flock perks. In the spirit of sharing things we're learning, I wanted to let you know about my new newsletter. It's called Jasmine's Jargon, and it's an upfront look at the many moving parts of my life as they relate to activism, veganism, writing, time management, and how I do my best to stay calm, or to try to stay calm. Each newsletter offers ideas, resources, and tools to help anyone who's interested in getting a bit more organized and focused do just that. I also, of course, cover topics relating to our hen house quite often, including what I'm learning from guests and cue the man behind the curtain, what tools we're using, everything from editing to communication, to keep our nonprofit thriving and our podcast thought-provoking and relevant. Since I also wear a few other hats in the vegan world and beyond, I also include the down-low about which projects inspire, motivate, and challenge my efforts to change the world for animals. If you'd like to join, and I hope you would like to join, you can sign up for free at jasminesinger.substack.com. And there's no E on Jasmine. So it's J-A-S-M-I-N-S-I-N-G-E-R dot Substack dot com. Thank you so much for being here on this journey with me and for listening to the Air House podcast and the Animal Law podcast. We couldn't do what we do without you, our community. And for that, we are so beyond grateful.
1: Anxieties are
2: rising.
1: Our first story is so gross. It's from drovers.com. It's called The Last of the Brand. And it's by one Kate Miller, who is, uh, works for a packer. And uh, she is also a third-generation cow-calf producer. Don't you love her already? Well, she t- starts off by talking about there are cattle that make waves through history through phenotype or genotype, they earn their way into the record books and the halls of history, etc., etc., etc. Our Melinda was certainly not one of them. Uh, she's one of the few who have earned a name. There's a lot of earning being done by cows in this, uh, in this particular article. And throughout the year, she was designated as a favorite. These are people who raise cows and send them off to feedlots, which send them off to slaughter. But um, she she, you know, she wasn't that great looking, you know, she goes through all of that. But her temperament had earned her a place amongst the keepers. She got to be kept in a herd of cattle known for agility and a general disdain for barbed wire fences and cowboys with sorting sticks. Melinda was an outlier. She liked a good head scratch and would tolerate a good rub down if you stood vigil and protected her spot at the feed bunk. Again, the genesis of this relationship is unknown and truly was likely discovered in the shoot. When out of the dozens that went through, she was the first not to blow snot in indignation of her current predicament. So she just wasn't as uh, she didn't fight back as hard as the other cows. So that apparently earned her spot. So uh, they made the decision that the bull calf she raised last year, well, raised until uh, he was taken away to be slaughtered, um, would be the last. She had earned her place among the keepers. And after years of dedicated service and decent behavior, we felt we owed her a peaceful retirement. Of course, the other cow, all the other cows were merely owed a violent death. Call us sentimental fools if you like. Actually, I don't like, honey. I don't like calling you a sentimental. I'm fool, maybe, but probably just evil and definitely not sentimental. I'm sorry. Call us sentimental fools if you like. But there was one other detail that made Melinda special to us a faded brand on her left hip put there by the cowboy that came before us, our grandfather. And then she goes on and on, you know, about apparently Melinda's actual value was not only that she was docile and didn't fight back as hard as some of the cows, but you know, that, that their grandfather's hand had touched her, touched her to burn a brand in her side. And then they talk about the sad day that they saw her and, and she was dying and then she died. And she was more than an asset long depreciated. <laughs> oh, my God. She was more than a source of income. She was more than just another old cow. Yeah, guys, she was. She was our last living memory. So her real value was, you know, that uh, she reminded them of their grandfather. Now she was gone. And perhaps he's up there opening the gate for her into the great herd up yonder. Okay. Do you really think that that when when cattle uh, die that they they go up yonder and you're going to meet them when you get there? Because I would be a little nervous about that gate. Uh, you know, this possibility that they, they, they're not going to like you that much. All right, from meetingplace.com, how video creates the authentic storytelling today's consumer's crave. This is an interesting one. This is from a marketing column, a marketer's lens by one Danette Amstein. She is into video and posting video on, you know, social media and all of that, and and YouTube. And she wants to connect with the target consumer. And she feels that stories give brands value and meaning. Well, you know, so far, that's just, you know, sensible marketing talk. For the meat industry, video has the potential to make a huge impact on how we tell our story. Many of our consumers want to know how animals are raised or understand the measures used to trace products from farm to fork. Video helps us show this to those who don't have everyday access to the environments where animals are raised and processed. Do you sense a scam coming on? Because there's plenty of videos out there showing how animals are raised and processed and they ain't nothing that the meat industry wants you to see. She points out that many of you, by that she doesn't mean you, she means like them, are capitalizing on video, but too often those of us in the industry try to create the prettiest picture possible. Well, that's interesting. It's time to set that mindset aside. Our consumers, especially Gen Zs, aren't interested in polished, staged messages. Does Dennett actually know what goes on out there? Because sometimes I think these marketing people and the people in the front office, they actually don't have a clue. They're looking for authentic stories. Oh, no, they're not. Especially when we talk about animal welfare and sustainability. No, you do not want authentic stories out there. And then she gives a whole list of uh, videos that she thinks are doing a good job. Oh, and encourages others to get out there with uh with what she thinks should be the truth. I don't know, I don't know. She's also worried about the fact that Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat are doing a really good job with this. So yeah, that is something to keep in mind. I, I you know, if I if you want to hire me, uh, meat industry, I would advise you, don't tell the truth. That's not going to get you anywhere. All right, finally, this is just a name, which I thought was like, you know, they keep coming up with names for products. So, this is a product from Applegate. It's an uncured beef hot dog. And according to them, this is a hot dog made with beef raised on verified regenerative US grasslands. Now, it's marketed as grass fed. So, I don't really know what that means because, as you probably know, grass fed does not mean that you're out there eating grass off the ground. It means that the food that the animals are eating is made from, is like, hey, uh, but they don't necessarily have to be out there eating it. They, this article doesn't say anything about that. So I have no way of knowing. And they do um, point out, this is pretty cheap. It's $6.99 for a six pack. I don't know how this is profitable, but Sunfed Ranch is one of uh, one of these outfits. And they, they say that they have more, a million and a half acres of U.S. grasslands, And they're marketing it this way. It has the Savory Institute's land to market seal. I don't know what all of this means. I do know that cows fed on grass are worse for climate change. So they're going to have to leave that out of their marketing. But I'm not telling you this for, for, I mean, it's interesting, but I'm not telling you this for any of of these reasons. The reason I noticed it is the name, the Do Good Dog. Like, doesn't that sound like it's a dog food? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> do you associate that with a hot dog? I think it's the worst. Like of all of the crazy names they've come up with, I think it's the worst one. We'll have to see how this one does. The do good dog. It either sounds like it's dog food or like it's people food made out of dogs. I don't know. Anyway, that's it for this week's rising anxieties.
0: Well, that's it for this week's show. If you like the podcast, we're asking for your support as we kick off our end of year fundraising season. We have had a truly epic year and we couldn't have done it without you. We're hoping you'll join us once again to ensure another productive, fabulous year for our henhouse. And the best part is that if you contribute between now and December 31st, your donation will be tripled dollar for dollar if we reach our goal of $20,000. That means that with your donation, plus our amazing barnyard benefactors and an added boost from an anonymous donor, we are hoping to raise $60,000 total for end of year. That's our main fundraiser of the year. So it's kind of a big, gigantic deal for us. And we can't do it without you. The only way we'll receive the matching funds is if we successfully reach our goal of raising $20,000 from our loyal supporters and listeners. That's you by the end of the year. Huge or modest, every donation counts and will help us reach our goal. If you're not already part of the flock, we invite you to join for $10 a month or $100 a year. You'll get some really cool perks, including weekly bonus content, access to our private flock Facebook group, and an invitation to flock First Friday Zoom meetings, plus the opportunity to have a one-on-one Zoom meeting with me to talk about anything activism related. And if you donate $100 or more, I'm going to send you a personalized video message to show you my undying love and gratitude. So if you appreciate our hen house and if you appreciate our mission to effectively mainstream the movement to end the exploitation of animals, if you find community and solace in our shows and our resources, and if you believe in the change-making power of indie media, please make a donation before December 31st And your donation will be tripled if we get to that 20000 Contributions of any amount are greatly appreciated. To support us today, visit OurHenHouse.org slash donate. Again, that's OurHenHouse.org slash donate. Another great way to support us is to leave us a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there or follow us on Twitter or Instagram. Across the board, we are at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our henhouse as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us, tell your enemies about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so very much. And thank you to my co-host Marianne Sullivan and to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast. Thanks to composer, Michael Herron for the music. Thanks to Podcast Haven for their work editing this podcast. I'm looking at you, Eric Montgomery and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez. We'd also love to give a shout out to the amazing Veronica Kalinska who designed our brand new logos and other graphics. We're gonna be back next week with a brand new show. So don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much. For tuning in. I'm Jasmine Singer and let's change the world for animals.